I think it's possible that the early service, my kids had their favorite church service ever, Colin, because Mark put in a David Crowder song, and Crowder's his favorite. Sean, because I preached a sermon on fantasy football. (laughs) Fantasy football is the new hottest topic in the Burdett household. Uh, Literally, I'm not sure it's possible to go five minutes without the topic coming up. Uh, How many people here play fantasy football? Uh, yeah, I say, I, I'm sure. Anybody else, really? I mean, it's okay. I'm not going to be preaching against family, fantasy football. You will not be considered a bad person for playing. Well, I will say that we are playing, and this is the first season for us. Uh, I've never played before. None of the Burdettes have. But we're super excited because this has been a two-year dream for Sean. He has been lobbying me like the persistent widow in the parable since 2013 to play fantasy football. And because I didn't want him getting in a league with a bunch of creepy random strangers, I said, well, you're going to have to wait till I have time to figure out how to set up my own league, which is super easy. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's, like, incredibly easy. But I didn't get around to it until two years later. So what a dad I am, right? But uh, so over Labor Day, I set up our league. Uh, obviously, I'm a little behind the schedule, Labor Day, right? But, hey, we got the time. Since then, Sean has become this sort of walking encyclopedia of fantasy football statistics. He shares about maybe 5% of them with us. He hoards the rest for strategy for himself. It's it's okay. Uh, We had our draft last Saturday. Uh, It was very confusing for us at first. We were pretty incompetent, but I am pleased to say that NFL.com rated my draft an A. Sent a personal, I don't know know how you came out, Walt, because... I would mention this is a Burdette plus some Savans sprinkled in there. And I was impressed with myself, very much so. I was the seventh pick out of a 10-team league, but I, I pulled off an A. And so our season begins this weekend. Again, a little bit behind, but no problem, no problem. We'll catch up. And my team is up against Collins, and that kid is going down. <laughs> so we're having this great time playing. It's, been, it's kind of drawn our family together in a good way, and you're probably thinking to yourself, if you're the sort of person who's played before, like, dude, you could have been playing for a decade. Uh, and that's, that's a true statement. And so you might wonder, why has it taken you so long to get around to playing fantasy football? So let me tell you. It's because I have always been confident that I would be awesome at it. You see, I can digest numbers. I'm a numbers guy by nature, and I can digest sort of vast amounts of data and, and decisively act on it. I love competition. And, and did I mention I can store an enormous amount of useless information for as long as is required? So, of course, I am confident I will be awesome at fantasy football, and that's why I have not played. Because I'm also confident that I could easily become obsessed with it. I would be the guy who's joining three or four or five leagues, the guy who's checking stats all the time, the guy who who gets obsessed with it in an unhealthy way, and it begins to impact my relationship with my family, my ability to do my coursework, starts distracting me at work. And I can even see it beginning to really, actually maybe more easily than the others, I can see it impacting my relationship with God because I can easily picture that at 5 o'clock when I am supposed to be up and praying and reading the Bible because that's the time I've carved out with God and I need it desperately for my life, I would be the guy who's contemplating roster moves. And so I have always avoided it. 
But out of love for my kids, I'm not taking the risk uh, because that's, that's what they want. And so as long as, you know, I think, I think my fear was that I would reach a point where fantasy football would crowd out the things that really matter. But, but we're going to give it a shot. I, so far, I'm very proud of myself because while I'm playing Colin's team today and obviously expect to destroy him, I spent the week making, helping him make roster moves to help improve his team where he had a little, some gaps after the draft. So I feel like I'm in good conscience there. I'm also in good conscience because when we had our draft, the four of us were at our different computers in different rooms. And, and Walt was over on his iPad. And I resisted the temptation to log onto my router and block him from access to the Wi-Fi <laughs> in the middle of the draft. So... So far, so good, but I would ask that uh, you pray for me that I would crush my family in a way that is honoring to God in the way I use my time. Well, that fear that I had, that fear that I would trade a passion for some hobby for what's really important in life is the focus of the passage, or at least the the initial entree point for the passage that we're going to talk about today from the book of James. If you're here over the winter, you'll remember that in February and March, I've been sort of working on an occasional series through the book of James. Uh, We covered chapters 1 through 3, so I'm going to pick up today in chapter 4. I'm going to look at verses 4 through 10, so I'll put it up on the screen, and you're also welcome to take a look at it in in your Bible. James writes, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And I would like to look at this passage as having three sections. The first part from verses 4 through 6 is teaching us a principle. The principle that we cannot be both friends with God and friends with the world. We have to make a choice. And that we need to humble ourselves and lay our friendship with the world before God. The second part from verses 7 through 9 applies that principle. It shows us what it looks like to humble ourselves before God. And the last part, verse 10, is going to address the reward when we do, in fact, humble ourselves before God. And what we're going to see as we go back and study this passage in more detail is that God gives grace and exaltation when we humble ourselves. And I think this is an interesting truth because it goes contrary to what our world tries to teach us. Because in our world, in our culture, we see all the time on TV and in every, every sort of little dimension we see the notion that you need to exalt yourself and do things so that you will be exalted by others. It never talks about this, that to be exalted, we must humble ourselves. 
And so we want to take some time and really appreciate that truth and let it soak in. And along the way, I think we're going to see some pretty amazing promises to us from the Lord. So let's take a look at this passage in more detail, starting with verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, James is pretty blunt here, as I think we've grown accustomed as we've been looking through the book of James. And if we look at the context of this passage, we look at verses 1 through 3 that that come before what we're talking about today. You're going to see that James is addressing churches that are being torn apart by conflict, by conflict that is fueled by their selfish and covetous desires and passions. And so he lays out this fact that it is as true today as it was 2,000 years ago, that we cannot be friends with the world without being enemies of God. You see, God and the world want to occupy the same place in our heart. We were made to worship something, and we are either going to desire friendship with God and relationship with Him and worship Him and fill ourselves from His infinite being, or we're going to desire friendship with the world and worship the world and try in vain to fill ourselves with the things of the world, and in the process, crowd the Lord out of our lives. This truth is so fundamental, and yet the temptation is so powerful that it is repeated over and over in Scripture. And I give you two more examples here, but I suffice to say that you can easily find more on your own. 1 John 2.15, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In Matthew 13, 22, Jesus is explaining the parable of the four soils. He says, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Over and over again, the testimony of Scripture is clear. It is impossible to be a friend of God and also be a friend of the world. So we need to honestly ask ourselves today, who are we friends with? Are we friends with God? Or are we friends with the world? Now remember in this context that friendship in the world is describing the pursuit of our passions and our desires in a sinful rather than God-honoring way. Or it's also describing when we pursue things that are good. And really, I have nothing against fantasy football or any of the things we're talking about, pursuing things that are good, but doing so to an extent and to a degree that it chokes off our relationship with God and becomes sinful. So the question for each of us becomes, are my passions, are my desires, are my dreams and hobbies and my pursuits, are they oriented towards God or are they oriented towards the world? Am I pursuing the things of the world in a way that impacts my walk with God and limits my ability to minister to my family and my friends? Now, before we're too quick to say, hey, we're in church on Sunday morning, so clearly it's God, and pat ourselves on the back and kind of feel satisfied and and walk out of here feeling good, that was good. I want us to look beyond our words. I want us to look beyond what we say on Sunday morning and instead look at our calendars. 
See, in Northern Virginia, time is easily the single most precious thing we have. It is more valuable than our talent. It is more valuable than our money. It is our currency here in Northern Virginia. If you're a Nova man or a Nova woman, your actual gold and silver is measured in hours and minutes, not dollars and cents. So where is your time being spent? Is it being spent on serving and growing God's kingdom here in Lake Ridge and to the ends of the earth? Or is it being spent on working too much, playing too much, commuting too much, driving your kids to too many activities? All these things are good things, but when they become too much, our calendar begins to tell the truth that our friendship is somewhere other than where we'd like. So I'd like us to take some time this week to reflect on what our calendar says about our friendship. And then, of course, we have to look at our money. What are we spending it on? What are we giving it to? Because that does speak volumes about our friendship. But I think even more fundamentally than than time and money is the question of what are we excited to talk about? Because the things we're excited to talk about are the things we love. So are we excited to talk about God and what he's doing in our lives? Are we excited to talk about what he's doing in our kids' lives or in our church? Or are we excited to talk about our jobs and our investments and sports and fantasy football and so many other things that are in our life? Because if we get excited about what we love, then what is it? And we talk about what we love. What are we talking about? And what does it say about us? So who or what are we friends with? Well, if any of us has succumbed to the comfortable materialism of our culture, then I'm sorry to say that at that moment, we are enemies with God. And while that is painful to consider, it is also the clear scriptural truth. And we need to accept it so that we can move beyond it. It's true that we are this way because if our true love lies with the world and with its enticements, then we're not loving the God who created us and to whom we truly owe our love. In being unfaithful to him, in loving the world more, we're committing spiritual adultery. And I think that's why James addresses this passage to adulterers, which on first read doesn't make a lot of sense in the context of the passage. But if we love the things of the world, then we are being unfaithful to our covenant with God, that covenant written in the blood of Jesus, that covenant written in our hearts. And we are being adulterers. And I think that at one time or another, we've probably all been unfaithful in this way. And we have all chased after the world. And we have all made God our enemy for at least a season. And I think many people here would be like me. And sometimes we struggle with that decision of how we use our time or how we use our talent or how we use our treasure. And sometimes we fail and we make the choice that really kind of says, you know, right now I'm, I'm feeling more friends with the world. And some may even be at this point today. And if so, what do we do when we reach that point where we have made ourselves enemies of God? Well, that's where James continues and gives us some some good news. Starting in verses 5 and 6. 
Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, God is jealous for our spirit. And this passage isn't talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the spirit of life that is within us, the spirit that God first breathed into mankind in Genesis, the spirit that has been breathed into each and every human being in this world. And he loves that spirit. And he yearns to have a relationship with that spirit because that's the kind of amazing God he is. He creates the universe and stars and planets and galaxies, and he creates the creatures of the earth and the fish of the seas, but he passionately desires to have a relationship with your spirit and with mine. And that, pa- that, that passage says that he yearns jealously over our spirit. And so I'm going to take a really short digression about this word jealous because I want to make sure we're all on the same page about it because famously Oprah Winfrey rejected the faith as a youth because of this word because she did not understand what this word meant in a biblical context. And I understand that completely. I know where she's coming from because in our modern English usage, this word is a terrible word. We're taught not to be jealous. We're taught that it is sinful, that it represents selfishness, and that bad things always come from jealousy. And so we need to understand that the jealousy of God is very different from human jealousy. And it is always used in a positive way in the Bible. The jealousy of God is never viewed negatively. It represents a zeal for us and for our well-being. And in fact, zealous and jealous are are words that are inextricably tied together, both in English and in Greek. They They are united because that's the concept we're trying to convey here in the Bible, that that God's jealousy is a loving zeal for us and for what's best. But it is also good to understand that God's jealousy is like the righteous passion of a husband for his wife or a wife for her husband, and that along with this comes an appropriate anger if our spouse is, is unfaithful. You see, God created us. He redeemed us at tremendous cost. He loves us and he nourishes us and he provides for us. And he is rightfully jealous for our spirit. And that should be a tremendous encouragement for everyone here. It's not a burden. This is not a negative thing. This is an encouragement because no matter where we are spiritually, God yearns for us. He loves us like a spouse. He desires so passionately for us to come back to him. And that's where the good news is, right at the start of verse 6. But he gives more grace. No matter how much we offend God and befriend the world, he gives more grace. And do we deserve it? course not absolutely not but that's the beauty of grace it is the gift that we do not deserve that is the meaning of the word 
And the assurance we have here is that God's grace that we don't deserve will always be greater than his anger that we do deserve when we fall into spiritual adultery, when we fall into love and friendship with the world, and we fall into hostility towards him. And we can know that no matter what we do, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his perfect and infinite blood offering that Pastor Neil talked about last week is more than anything we can do to offend God. And all we have to do is accept that grace by humbling ourselves before the Lord and accepting his grace and forgiveness through our faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. Be humble and not proud. As James says, he's quoting Proverbs here when he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So I say let's stop living a life opposed by God and just accept God's grace by humbling ourselves. Well, what does that mean exactly? Every time I worked on this, I'd say, well, what does that mean? Well, what does that mean? Well, what does that mean? So what does that mean? Well, if you are not yet a believer, then it means that you need to begin by putting your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, by confessing your sin before God and believing that Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, died and was raised again so that your sins could be forgiven. But if you're already a believer, then, then humbling yourself before God can be a difficult concept. Because like jealousy, humility has come to have a confused meaning in the English language. I like C.S. Lewis a lot, and he has a great perspective on humility when he says that true humility is not thinking less of yourself, right? And that's what we tend to think of it as. We, we tend to think, oh, you're humble if you're like, oh, I'm really bad at that, I'm really bad at that, I'm really bad at that. No. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. In the context of the passage, it's about humbling ourselves before God. It clearly means thinking of our passions and our desires less while thinking of God and considering God and considering others in the church more. It means recognizing our love for the world for what it is and seeing those desires that are at war within us and understanding the depths of our unfaithfulness to God. And that's why verses 8 and 9 tell us to cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, which is a, it's a very Bible-ish word. I would have preferred sorrowful. It's a little more accessible. Sorrowful and mourn and weep. And so we must submit ourselves to God. Verse 7 starts off a series of Greek imperatives. They go boom, 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 and an imperative, remember, is a command. These are commands that James is giving to his readers, to us today. And the first and probably most fundamental is submit yourselves to God. And, of course, what's my next question? Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? How do we submit to God? Well, James gives us two parallel commands immediately after that, and each carries an amazing promise. Verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. 
Let's think about those for a minute, because I think if there are two pervasive lies about spiritual matters, there's lots of pervasive lies in our culture, but if there are two about spiritual matters that I think really pervade our culture, the first is that Satan is really, really tough and powerful and super scary, because he looks like that in TV shows and movies. And the second is that God is disinterested and distant from us. And these verses show that those are lies. The devil's a coward. He will flee when we resist. And God, on the other hand, is yearning to come near to us as long as we make that first move toward him. So how do we resist the devil? Well, it doesn't look like the exorcist. If you haven't seen the exorcist, you don't need to. It's not like that. There's no chanting. There's no holy water. There's no waving the crucifix around. We resist the devil by choosing God. We resist the devil by holding out the good news of Jesus Christ and holding on to that when we're being tempted. We resist the devil by proclaiming it to him when we are being tempted. We resist the devil by drawing near to God because when we do, God draws near to us. And the devil's going to flee before his mighty power. So how do we do that? How do we draw near to God? James just keeps presenting all these questions to me. We worship him. Certainly at church, but we do it not just at church on Sunday mornings. We do it at home. We do it in our cars. We do it at work. We do it as we walk through the day. We do it with our families. We do it with our kids. We celebrate what we see in the world from God, and we thank him and praise him for it. We worship, or we draw near, rather, by praying. We draw near by studying his word. And if you look in our bulletins in the last several weeks, there are so many different ways to get involved in a Bible study. There are Bible studies for, for mixed groups. There's Bible studies for men. And, and I'm most super impressed with Bible studies for women because the women of our church are kicking it. And there is probably a study almost every single day of the week. And if you are not part of one of these studies, you're missing out on a great opportunity to draw nearer to God and nearer to one another as believers. And we draw near by ministering and serving in God's name. And all this stuff is simple. But it's hard because the world is constantly beckoning us to be friends with it, to come and walk a while with the world. And so as we draw near, we must seek to live a holy life in the Spirit, as verse 8 and 9 talked about. Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy turned to gloom. We have to do our best to live that clean and holy life to which we're called, but we also need to realize it is impossible without the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, it is altogether impossible. You will just exhaust yourself trying to get clean. And it's not going to work. For believers, we're going to struggle. We're going to struggle all the time because of our remaining desire to be friends with the world. But the good news is, even though these are commands, again, imperatives, commands, cleanse our hands, purify our hearts, we don't have to do them ourselves as believers. We don't have to cleanse our hands ourselves. Jesus does that for us with his blood. We don't have to purify our hearts ourselves. 
The Holy Spirit does that as we draw nearer and nearer to God. The passage calls for us to bring our sins before God in genuine sadness and repentance. Hear these words, be wretched and mourn and weep. James isn't calling here for some generic confession like I like to do a lot. Lord, I'm sorry for whatever bad thing I did yesterday, though I don't actually remember what it is. But it's probably something, so forgive me. And he's not calling for the great American non-apology. God, I'm sorry if I offended you. But I'm not actually taking responsibility. It's just your, your viewpoint. James is calling us to remember in detail, in genuine sorrow, what we have done to sin against others and to sin against God. And if you have a short memory like I do, then ask God to help you remember so that you can be truly sorry for all that you've done. But here's the awesome promise of this passage. If we are willing to genuinely reflect on our sins and genuinely humble ourselves in sorrow before the Lord, he's not going to leave us there. He's not. Verse 10 tells us, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. In the midst of our sorrow and in the midst of our humility and in the midst of our guilt and our pain, he is going to exalt us. The perfect sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, God will wipe away our tears. He will turn our sorrow to joy. He will raise us up out of the muck and the mire and clean us off and exalt us to be in his presence. And that is awesome. Truly God gives grace and exaltation when we humble ourselves. So let us each humble ourselves this morning and every day before our Lord and be exalted. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words and for the amazing promise you have made, Lord. Help us to accept your grace. Help our stubborn hearts to soften and to recognize that we need to humble ourselves and confess our sins before you, Lord. And then just be humble enough for us to accept a gift we don't deserve and didn't earn, Lord. Lord, we thank you for your grace, and I pray that each and every person here will reach out and accept that grace each and every day as we humble ourselves. Lord, bless us. We praise you for this promise. We praise you for the exaltation you offer, the opportunity to be in your presence now and for eternity through your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. As, Mark, as, the, as the music begins, if God's been speaking to you this morning, I would ask that you would just stay where you are and humble yourself before God. Confess your sins. Accept his grace and be exalted.